You all are cooler than the first service. I heard some of you out there singing. You knew the words. <laughs> uh, you know, I was preparing for this message. It's the final one in the series, uh, Keys to Being Fully Human, Fully Alive. And, of course, it centers in the subject of love. And it's one of the key contexts that God has created for us so that we can grow in love. But this song popped into my head. You know, when you're at my age, all kinds of things pop into your head. You never know where they're going to come from. But... Uh, Neil Young originally wrote the song. It was Nicolette Larson that sang it and uh, made it famous, number one hit. But if you, if you watch the words, that's why we darkened it out. I really wanted you to look at some of those words. It's, uh, it's kind of an insightful song. I don't know what Neil Young was thinking, but I think he was at least observing, and it brought some pain, frankly. <sighs> pain to me because I think what he was observing is that we live in a world that is full of people who are at the very least hungry all the time for love, all the time. And not a few people are out and out starved for love. And because of it, we, we clash with one another and everyday life is so much harder than deep inside we sense it was supposed to be. And it's, it's just like this ongoing tragedy, human history, this, this lovelessness and this starvation and hunger that we have for love. Now, Jesus, he had a lot to say about love. We have a portion of scripture that I'll share with you. Matthew 22, this was toward the end of Jesus' life, and the religious leaders had already made up their mind that they wanted to get rid of him, and so they were trying to trap him in questions, and one of them came and thought they had a trick question for him. Uh, Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, It goes on, this is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as your who? As yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. Jesus was saying that everything that the Old Testament had written, the Ten Commandments, the 613 commandments given to the nation of Israel, he said all of them are just expressions of loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. But you know, that's a lot of love. That's a lot of love. We did a series in here called The Big Picture one time, and and what I tried to do is I tried to peel back the curtains and let everyone see what is God's ultimate intention? Why is there anything? What is he working toward? Because I feel like sometimes churches give people little pieces of the puzzle, but we don't show the cover of the puzzle. So we came out with a statement like this. Here's God's ultimate eternal plan. God's big plan is the development of an eternal family Notice the family, the connectedness of Christ-like beings united in loving devotion to Christ and one another. There you have it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Love. The future. The future for those that are reconciled to Christ their creator, for those who are brought back into a trusting relationship with Christ their creator, the future for you, if I just described you, It is a very, very good future. You're going to live in a world where every day you are immersed in love. Every person you meet, every person your child meets, everywhere you go, every experience you have will be immersed and saturated with love. There will be no more unkindness. There will be no more prejudice. There won't be hatred. There won't be any more dishonesty or cruelty or crime or sickness or sorrow or pain or death. And that's our destiny Jesus rose from the grave to show it's certain we can trust it, we can count on it, more importantly, we can live for it. 
But all this love, all this love, it, it's an awful lot of love. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But the truth is, I came to a realization as a young adult, a Christ-following adult, I came to a realization that most of my life could be easily described as an individual that was love-starved and because of that went through life trying to find love, find something to satisfy the impossible hole in my soul to fill. Now, that was as a young adult I came to this realization. It was easy to look back at my childhood and figure out why it, it occurred and all like that. But before you start feeling sorry for me or anything, that's not the point of it. What I found out later as an adult is that what that had done to me, this love-starved condition, it hadn't made me a pitiful person. It hadn't even made me a nice person. Quite the opposite. It made me a very, very selfish person. I didn't know it. I didn't mean it. But when you are empty inside, you're just trying to find something to fill your soul you become the emotional black hole of need and you suck the life out of everybody and everything gets close to you. How many of you here have ever had either a, a toothache or an earache? Can I see your hands? Okay. When you have a toothache or an earache, can you think about anything else except your pain? No. Well, when we are hungry for love or starved, which is worse for love, we become self-absorbed. We become selfish. All we can think about is our pain. We're not conscious of it, but we literally just go about selfishly oriented in our interactions with people. And ironically, you can't experience love when you're like that. The very thing that you're trying to get, you make it impossible to get because that's not the nature of love at all. So when we talk about all this love, how do we that have this love deficit, we're at least hungry for it, if not starved, and some of us as you sit here today, I just want you to, to ask yourself, are you, are you love hungry? You go through life looking for love in every place you go. You do, whether you're aware of it or not. But some of us are in that other category. Truth be told, we're love starved. So, so how do we learn to love? How can we even start loving when we're in this condition? Well, there's a past scripture in 1 John 4.10 that gives us help. It says, true love is God's love for who? For us. And then it goes on to say something we need here. Not our love for God. So we read earlier, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. But now here it's saying, God knows we don't love him. He knows our capacity is emaciated. And he knows that until we can drink deeply and take in his love sufficiently, we're not going to have anything to give to anyone else. You can't give what you don't have but we're to drink deeply on God's love. And it goes on to show that God gave a demonstration of this love. He sent his son as the way to do what? Take away our sins. It didn't say take away the penalty of our sins. This is to take away our sins. Sins are those destructive, personally destructive and socially destructive actions that result from us being self-oriented, selfish and a lot of times it's just because we're literally, we're literally just looking for something to ease the pain. We're literally looking for love, but we do terrible things in the process. And Jesus' sacrificial death was meant to put a disincentive into you and I to continue these kind of self-destructive deeds to take away our sin. So what we want to do in this last message, we want to talk about a key that I call the key of context. And... Uh, before we do, I think it's important that when we talk about love, we understand what God means with love. Because when we hear love today, we pretty much have this notion in mind that it's something that's kind of uh, an affection, an emotionally based thing. It might even be a romantic based thing, but it's usually something that's geared in emotion. 
But that's not exactly the way that God uh, determines what love really is. So in the Greek language, you had a bunch of words. Yeah, let me give you a little history real quick. I know it's bores of tears out of some of you. But um, Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world in the 3rd century B.C. And every time Alexander would conquer a country, he would leave a lot of Greek culture and he would leave the Greek language. Therefore, when Jesus and the apostles in the first century were walking around, not only did they speak Hebrew, they all spoke Greek. The whole Roman world spoke Greek. Our New Testament was originally written in Greek, Koine Greek, the common Greek of the people. Now, here's the deal I'm leading up to. We have one word for love. You might love your old slippers. You might love your car. You might love your dog. You may love your husband, your wife, your kids. You may love your job. You may love a certain sports team. But you only have one word to describe that love. Well, in the Greek language, it was very specific. They literally had seven different words for love, differing kinds of love. I'm not going to share all seven with you, but really, really quickly, let me just show you four popular ones. Eros, we're familiar with that, eroticism, you know. It's that romantic love. Philio, that's friendship love. Storge, that's that family love, but it also means it's just familiar love. You can love your dog with storge love because he's familiar to you. But then there's this one that's used over 300 times in the New Testament. By the way, this one, Eros, is not even used in the New Testament. These two are used just a few times. But this one, agape, which is called God's love, it's used over 300 times in the New Testament. So what does it mean? What's the distinctive? How is it different? Because if we don't understand what love is the way God sees it, we're, we're going to be pursuing something that's false. So here's a definition of it. God's love, that agape love, it is seeking the highest well-being and happiness of the other person simply because Christ created them and loves them. It's kind of like a term that we use sometimes, unconditional love, but, but I, I have some problems with that exactly. But it's saying that it doesn't matter if they deserve it. It doesn't matter if they reciprocate. Simply because they are created by Christ and he loves them, I am going to seek their highest well-being and happiness. I don't always know what that is, so I'm going to immerse myself in God's word so that I know what that is. And that's what I'm going to do. That's love, God's love. And that's the kind of love that we're talking about here. And that's the kind of love that this world desperately, desperately is in need of. So in order to help us develop this love, God has created this thing called context, or I'm using the term context, but he definitely created them. They are relational context. But, so what do I mean? What is, what is a context? Here's a quick definition for that. Context, not sure why that happened. <laughs> context are relationally dynamic opportunities for us to learn how to love. That's what I mean by context. They are relationally dynamic opportunities. They, they create some energy. They create some tension. They create some pressure that help us to unlearn selfishness and to learn how to be selfless and to love like God loves. So let's turn to the book of Ephesians really quickly. And what we want to do is examine the unique dynamics of context. And if you don't mind, turn to page 1321 in those Bibles that are near you on the chair. We want to examine the unique dynamics of context. And we're just going to quickly look at three of these contexts that God's given us to give us unique opportunities to develop love on the way that he loves. If you're in Ephesians chapter, thir- or chapter 5, look at, um, and it'll be page 1321. Let's start with verse 21, and I'm going to skip around a bit. It starts out, And submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So submission to one another is kind of a normal thing. Verse 22. Wives, 
Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Should I stop here, fellas? We don't really need anything else. Did you hear that, ladies? As the Lord. <laughs> All right, we'll read one more. Uh, look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Well, that, that changes everything. So now we have to be sacrificially devoted to the wife, and then the wife, of course, feels safe enough to be partner and, and work along with the husband. So here's the first context. All I'm trying, I'm not going to get into big teaching on the husband's wife. The first context that God created was marriage. Remember, Adam was all alone with God, you know, and, and he's having a ball in the Garden of Eden, and he's naming all the animals and everything. But then God says to him, he says, it's not good for you to be alone, Adam, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Not good for you to be alone. Well, he wasn't alone. God was there. The animals were there. What more does a man need, you know? He had fruit trees, you, you know. But God said, no, 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 no. You need somebody that you can love on a horizontal. He, he received love from God, but he needed somebody that he could selflessly love or he would not. you got to get this part. This is the whole message. Or he would never develop. He would never develop the kind of love that God is going to fill this universe with. Listen, in this life, God actually wants you and I to start developing his kind of love, the kind of love that's going to fill the universe for eternity. And it can't happen unless there's something or someone to love, to sacrifice for, to give for, to care for. And so he creates a woman, and we, we have marriage. So the first context that we're talking about is marriage. Let's look at another one. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment, accompanied by a promise, namely, did it may go well with you, so that your parents don't kill you, in other words. Um, did it may go well with you, and that you will live a long life on the earth. So, Verse 4 adds to the whole parental scene. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children anger, but raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He's saying, in other words, you know how God raises you up. You know how he molds you and shapes you. You know how kind and merciful and gentle and wise he is. Well, raise your kids that way, he's saying. But the second context, all I want you to see, the second context is parenting. Okay? There's a third context, and then I'll talk about what's unique about these contexts. Let's look at the third one. Now, please, when you read this word slave, don't be offended. In fact, uh, maybe I should do a little, little history real quick. In the first century, you have to understand the Roman Empire conquered most of the known world. And when your country was conquered by the Romans, you might have been a butcher, baker, candlestick maker, doctor, lawyer. It didn't matter what you were. You became a slave. You may still practice whatever your craft or trade was, but you were a slave of the Roman Empire. Roman slavery was not as horrific and brutal as American slavery. It could be if you had a bad master, but for the most part, it was not. You were kind of a, a member of an extended household. Anyway, that's the New Testament context. There were about 60 million slaves, they estimate, in the Roman world. So most of the first Christians, Christ followers, were slaves. So keep that in mind as you read what I'm about to read to you. Here we go. Verse 5. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling. In the sincerity of your heart, as to who? You guys looking at your Bibles? Some of you are not. And this stuff's not on the board here. I really wish you would because, you know, I could be making this up. <laughs> okay, here we go. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not like those who do their work only when someone is watching as people pleasers. 
but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Obey with enthusiasm as though serving the Lord and not people. Because you know that each person, whether slave or free, if he does something good, this will be rewarded by the Lord. Now he turns to the bosses or masters in this case. Masters, treat your slaves the same way. Giving up the use of threats because you know that both you and they have the same master in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. So here's the third context. Now, what is unique about each of these three contexts? Each of these contexts has the same necessary pull upon anyone that engages in them. It pulls upon our selfishness. It pulls us toward becoming more selfless. It pulls us to learn how to love God's way. It stimulates these dormant capacities we have to love like God. We were creating his image. The capacities are in there, but they're dormant. They're, they're dead. And until we are moved by something, until something stimulates us to be less selfish, we will stay selfish. So each of these contexts, in marriage, everybody knows in marriage, you've got to think about your spouse. You just have to. If you, if you want to have peace of mind, peace of, peace of anything, you're, you're, you're going to have to have some, some consideration. Everybody knows with kids, you know, as soon as they're born, you serve them. You, you, they can't do anything. They won't do anything. You serve them. You are forced to be unselfish. Work. You are in a place trying to accomplish something, a common goal. You're trying to make some money, a profit for a company, or produce a product or something like that. And you must, you must learn to team and cooperate and work with people from diverse backgrounds, many of which are not nice people. How many of you work with not nice people? Can I see your hands? There you go. It just proves the Bible's true. There you are. <laughs> so this forces for us to learn patience and unselfishness and to love like God does because he loves the evil and the good, it says. So here's the deal. Here's where this, the, the whole message gets down, in my opinion, to this particular point, and it's about expectations. All right, let's look at marriage. We go into marriage, and, you know, our thinking is commonly like, man, this is, this is euphoria. I have been waiting for this moment forever. My, my soulmate, I'm, I'm going to be with my soulmate Forever and ever. That's what we expect. It's okay. We should. We should. Some of the most beautiful, wonderful experiences we're ever going to have on this earth or, or with our spouse. But we're expecting somebody to feel, feed, minister to the whole, the hunger, the starvation of love in our soul. So that's our expectation, but this is what we actually get. That's an iceberg, if you're wondering. Now, don't, don't, don't think of it in the wrong way. No, no, no. You got to go, go, go. You see, the thing that's unique about an iceberg is this 70% of an iceberg is hidden below the surface. Anyone that you marry, I marry, anyone marries, you only know about 20 or 30% of them. I don't care how transparent they've tried to be. The 70 hidden percent will slowly but surely come to the surface. And that's where you and I get the opportunity to learn how to 
love. It is when the euphoria goes away. How many of you know what I'm talking about, the euphoria? You know, when you first meet somebody, you spend three hours on the phone with them and like that, and, and just touching their hand is, oh, man, your heart flutters. And you just feel like, if I could just be with this person forever, I don't need anything else. I'll just, I'm in heaven already. All I need is that. That's euphoria. But the euphoria typically doesn't last past, well, six months, a year, something like that. And when the euphoria goes away and that iceberg starts to rise up out of the water and you're like, who are you? Where did you come from? Now you have a dynamic relationship that allows you and I to learn on selfishness and to be stretched and to be stimulated in our dormant capacities to unselfishly love, to study someone, to care for them, to learn about them, to try our best to help them and heal them and serve them and give to them. That's love. That's God's kind of love. What about children and parents? You know, so, so we think, oh, man, it's wonderful. We're going to have a baby. We're going to have a baby. Oh, he, she is going to be so wonderful. We're going to have three. We're going to have five. We're going to have a dozen. We're going to have ten, whatever it is. You know, and, and, oh, they're going to be so much fun to play with and everything and cuddle and, and coo, and, and then they're going to grow up, and they're going to be wonderful kids. Oh, they're going to be wonderful. They're always going to be friends of the family. They're going to do great things on the planet, and they're, they're, going, to, they're going to go into the same profession I did, and they're going to be an athlete like me, and, you know, on and on and on. We have all these expectations for our children some of which can be paralyzing to them. But this is what we get. We get this. <laughs> we get a creature that right from the start, we ought to know we're in trouble. They don't do anything. We have to serve them endlessly. We can't even sleep anymore. You know, we, we have to just endlessly serve and serve. And then they get old, they turn against us and try to devour us, you know. So... <laughs> All kidding aside, once again, having children will force you. You know it, parents. It will force you to learn to be unselfish. And that is good. Marriage will force you to learn to be unselfish. And it, it can be painful, but it's good. Now work. Some of you don't even want to go there. You don't even talk about this one. Okay? But the truth is, those environments that sometimes we considered, I don't even have a picture for work, so I didn't even try on that one. <laughs> You know, the work environment we may be in, it may be unpleasant, it may be hostile, we may have a hostile boss, we may have hostile work associates and so forth, and we feel like, this is awful, I'm in the wrong place, I've got to find the right place, I'm going to quit this job, I'm going to find another job, and then we go to the other job and we find, oh my goodness, they must have twins because they're all the same kind of people, so I'm going to quit that job too, that's obviously not the right place, God, you don't want me going there, you want me in a peaceful place surrounded by lovely lovely Christian people, and so you quit that job, and, and you know some people, I guess, they just go job to job to job to job to job because they're looking for something that God doesn't actually want them to have. Let it sink in. What if it's better to be in a work environment that taxes you to your last nerve what what if it's better to be in an environment where the people are not that nice and they're lost and they're far from god and they're difficult to get along with and they will put a a, a knife in your back if they get a chance what better environment for one of christ's followers to be in to give some light to learn how to love unlovely people jesus talked about loving enemies he said you can you can love your enemies 
at agape love, that disinterested goodwill for others. You can bless them, Jesus said. You can do good to them, and you can pray for them. Even an enemy we can love. And many of us in our work environments, we are given this wonderful opportunity to, to learn how to love all differing kinds of people, many of which are very hard to love. How many work with some people that are very hard to love? Can I see your hands? It's okay. I, I don't know who they are. <laughs> can you accept? Can you adjust your expectations? You say, Randy, my marriage is really hard, man. It's, 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 it's hard. It's, it's killing me. But if your expectation is to learn how to love, looks like an opportunity. You say, man, my, my kid is pulling the life out of the whole family. I mean, the kid has gone bad, Randy. I, well, you can still love the kid, though it's painful, and the job. I, I can't take it. I, I, I'm going to have to quit. The stress is killing me, Randy. Well, it doesn't have to kill you. God will give you strength if you want to learn how to love. Because the more destitute of love and peace of our, an environment is, frankly, the greater the opportunity for us to grow in God's kind of love. Does it feel good? No. Is it wonderful afterward when your capacity is actually expanded? Yes. So here are these three contexts. Three contexts that we can learn to love the way God loves. And you can't grow or expand in love unless there's something that stimulates us to be less selfish because we are love hungry and a lot of us are even love starved. Listen to what Jesus said the last night he was with his disciples in John 13. He said, I'm giving you a new command. That you keep on, notice this continuous action, that you keep on loving each other in the same way that I have loved you. You are also to keep on loving each other. Now, Jesus' love for his disciples, it, it was very uh, diverse. I mean, sometimes he encouraged them. Sometimes he comforted them. Sometimes he stuck up for them. Sometimes he taught them. But then sometimes he corrected them. And sometimes the correction got stronger to where he admonished them which means he confronted them about their behavior that was not correct. And then other times he out and out rebuked them. His love was still love, but it was, it was many-sided. It, it was appropriate to the occasion for their development. So the kind of love we're talking about, it is not this squishy, mushy, you know, kind of an emotional-only thing. It's a strong, healthy love that always seeks the highest well-being of the other person. Listen to this one from 1 Thessalonians 3.12. It says, May the Lord flood you with an unending, undying love for one another and for all what? All humanity, like our love for you. This is what God wants to do. You ever want to check yourself out if you're growing as a Christian, as a Christ follower? Is your love for people hard to love people? Is your love for the world, for humanity, is it actually growing? Uh, that's, that's where the direction God wants to take us is to increase our capacity to love. He knows that we need help and context is one of his ways. So, okay, so how do we experience this transforming uh, dynamic of context? Well, there's a verse in Romans, uh, excuse me, actually, before I go there, I want, want to share an illustration with you um, that um, John Ortberg talked about, but it's a guy named John Gottman and particularly his comments I want to share with you. They, uh, they were doing a study at Berkeley in 2015 and the study was interesting. It took $100 million, a $100 million project, a space project. They wanted to uh, send out these nanocraft into um, Alpha Centauri. They, they figured that 
you know, because these things were small, they could send them out to Alpha, Alpha Centauri at about one-fifth of the speed of light. And they wanted to see one thing. Was there any intelligent life in the universe? Stephen Hawking agreed with the program. He thought it was a really, really good idea. Find out, is there any intelligent life in the universe? Well, this psychologist named John Gottman picked up on this. And let me just read you uh, something he said, and then I'll turn you to a portion on the screen that he said in closing. He said, the folks at Berkeley are not the only ones who want to know. We're all constantly sending out tiny little probes, emotional nanocrafts, to find out whether we're alone in the dark. They travel at high speeds, and it's easy to miss them. They can be small. Did you see the game last night? They can be poignant. I don't think I'll ever call my dad again. They can be deep. I'm not sure my wife loves me anymore. They can be urgent. I have no one else to talk to. Can I speak to you confidentially? Then he goes on and says these words. These emotional nanocrafts are what researcher John Gottman calls bids for emotional connection. Please focus in on that. A bid can be a question, a gesture, a look, a touch. Any single expression that says, I want to feel what? Connected to you. Intimacy of every kind is either built up or eroded based on how well we handle the subtle little nanocrafts of relational life. For us to capture these opportunities, we have to be sensitized toward them. We have to have space enough in our own soul that we are no longer so desperately seeking our own emotional needs that we have space enough to hear and to see objectivity, with objectivity other people. I like the way Romans chapter 1 describes a maturing Christ follower. Romans chapter 15 verse 1 rather. I don't think it's me. It's me. Is this already on? Okay, all right, here we go. Romans 15, 1. Now, those who are mature in their faith, remember two messages ago, we, talked, we know what maturity is. Maturity is becoming just like Christ, which is God's goal for us even in this life. Now, those who are mature in their faith can easily be recognized, for they don't live to what? Please themselves. They don't live to please. Can you say that together? They don't live to? See, it hurt even to say it, didn't it? That's love, not living to please yourself. It goes on. But have learned to patiently embrace others in their what? That's their unchristlikeness. You have unchristlike people in your workplace. You might have an unchristlike uh, family member or, or child or spouse even. I mean, that's just reality. But, but a mature person embraces them. It goes on. Our goal must be to empower others to do what is right and good for them. I'm seeking what is highest and best for them. I'm not, I'm not thinking about what I get in return. And to bring them into spiritual maturity. Now, you and I cannot be responsible for someone's spiritual maturity, but we can at least do things that will open the pathway that if they care enough, they will pursue their own spiritual maturity. And so this is the way we can express love in these key relational context so let me let me kind of get ready to land the plane um, close with a story it's told by a guy named Andy Crouch about a, a really dear friend of his named David Sachs and both of these guys were born in 1968 
And uh, when David Sachs, who was an internationally known photographer, when he was about 45 years old, he came down with cancer. And so they started treating him, you know, uh, very carefully for it. He even put online his experience. He and his wife shared all the different treatments they went through and how they were handling things as Christ followers and so forth. But tragically, within a year, medical science was exhausted. There was nothing more, nothing more they could do. And so I want to read you one thing that Andy Crouch, this dear friend of David Sachs, said. He said, but we were all in the room, all in his hospital room. There he was. He was still there, but just barely. He was able to hear us praying, able in moments of lucidity to open his eyes, take in the small group of family and friends gathered around his bed, and know that he was not alone. And then these words. The technology was over, meaning there's nothing more that technology or medical science could do. The easy everywhere dream had ended. Now we could only be here in our own vulnerable bodies, present to the immensely hard reality of a friend, a father, a son, and a husband dying. It was one of the hardest places I have ever been. He goes on. It was one of the most holy places I've ever been. It was one of the best places I've ever been. We are meant, we are meant to die in one another's arms, surrounded by prayer and knowing that we are loved. Now, I think each and every one of us wants that. None of us wants to die. None of us wants a world where there's sin, sorrow, pain, or death either, but we're in one. And if we, don't, if we don't live to see the return of Christ, we all will die. And I think if we want to die like this guy, David Sachs died, surrounded by praying friends who love us, it's got to start somewhere now. And these contexts, these relational contexts are God's invitation, this opportunity for us to learn how to love so that when we go through this dark valley, the evidence that we have loved will be exhibited by the fact that there will be people that care. There will be people there. More importantly, when we go to this place, if we go to this place, we're going to go all alone. Death has a way of giving us crystal clear objectivity about what matters in life and what doesn't. When you're, when you're at death's door, you're not going to care. I'm not going to care one iota about you know, what my lawn looked like or what my furniture was like or what great accomplishments. The only thing that's going to matter is am I going through that journey with a certainty that the God that created the universe is there with me? That's all that's going to matter. This God that I'm going to face and dwell with eternity. And is there anybody that I have sufficiently loved that there is evidence that I existed and my existence was worth anything? If that resonates with you in any way, if that matters to you, now is the time to look at these contexts that God has given to us because they are meant to catalyze our dormant capacities to learn to love unselfishly the way that God loves. And sometimes the toughest ones are the greatest gift. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes. We can't see a lot of times. We get so caught in the emotional intensity of it all, we can't see. Show us that our capacity to love and to give is far greater than what we may think. Give us resilience. Give us courage. Give us wisdom. And may we abound in love. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.